Today we are beginning a new worship series that we are calling Finding God. For the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at various Old Testament characters and specific moments in their story. And with each character, we want to look specifically at what God is doing in their lives in that moment, how God is revealing himself, and how the characters choose to respond that we might then be invited to pay attention to how God is revealing himself, is at work in our own lives, in our own stories. We begin our series this morning with Esther and what is perhaps the defining moment in her story, a moment in which there would forever be a before and an after. Before we get here, though, before we read about this moment, we need to refresh our memories as to what's happened so far in the story, because it is quite a story. And so as we turn to the story, would you join me in prayer? Good and gracious God, we thank you for your word, your word that nourishes and sustains us, that comforts and that challenges us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word, not mine, not ours, but yours, for you alone are God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a quick refresher on exilic history, the history of the exiles. So Israel is taken into captivity by Assyria and then by Babylon, and then Persia defeats Babylon under the rule of Cyrus. And Cyrus, in a rather ingenious ploy to extend his kingdom, allows the exiles, still under his rule, to return home. Some Israelites, however, have gotten used to life in their new villages, their new cities. They've been there a long time, after all, and so they choose to stay. This is the case with a man named Mordecai and his cousin Hadassah, or Esther. They live in Susa, which is one of the four capitals of the now Persian Empire. The book names Ahasuerus as king of Persia, who most scholars believe to be King Xerxes I. And Xerxes is not the most rational of gentlemen. This whole book of the Bible could probably be best summed up in the phrase, well, that escalated quickly. Folks are overreacting all over the place, beginning with Xerxes. At the beginning of the book, Xerxes is throwing a massive party, an eight-day feast, a feasting full of grandeur and entertainment. And he decides one night that he wants to show off his beautiful wife, Vashti. But because Vashti is her own person, she declines his invitation This is such a big deal to Xerxes that he has to consult his counselors about what is to be done. They raise quite the ruckus about how now all of the women in the land are going to follow her lead and revolt against their husbands, which would be a disaster. So Xerxes does the only reasonable thing and deposes and exiles Vashti. And because he is the king and normal dating isn't quite good enough for him, he orders his attendants to go throughout the kingdom of Persia and round up all the young, beautiful women for the world's largest edition of The Bachelor, 
only one in which the women don't have much of a say. Esther is one such woman. Before she is taken, Mordecai, her uncle-slash-father figure, tells her not to reveal her Jewish identity, presumably for her own safety or so that she might be treated better. After a long grooming process, she is finally brought to the king, who takes quite the shine to Esther and makes her his queen. Then things move rather quickly through the story. While Esther is queen, Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill Xerxes. He alerts Esther, who alerts the king, who takes out the would-be assassins and has the whole event recorded. Then we jump through time rather quickly to an occasion on which the king is commending someone named Haman for something. Haman is given a place of honor greater than anyone but the king. And as one does when one is that important, Haman goes parading about the city so folks can pay him homage. Except that Mordecai does not. Maybe he didn't like Haman, maybe he was principled enough that he wouldn't bow down to a foreign ruler or to anyone that was not God, but he refuses to bow. And Haman, in the overreaction of the millennium, decides to not just punish Mordecai for this faux pas, but to destroy the entire people group that Mordecai belongs to, the Jews. And not just the Jews in Susa, but all of the Jews in the entire kingdom. As one does when planning such a massacre, Haman rolls the dice to pick a random date on which to enact this and convinces the king to issue a decree that is sent out to every province and read to all the people so they might prepare themselves for the day. I think the last sentence of chapter three, after this decree is sent out, is one of the most fantastic in the sense of it being crazy and understated in the whole Bible. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Understandably so. This is where chapter four, our text this morning, picks up. So let's read what happens next. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. 
Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a big moment for Esther. Not only is she risking her life by approaching the king without being summoned, she is now aligning herself with her people and her God after years of pretending to be someone different. She calls for her people to fast, to participate in the religious rituals that she had abandoned so long ago. Esther is about to reveal her true identity. In this moment, Esther takes her first step on the path to heroism. And that's what we think of when we think of the story of Esther, right? For such a time as this is the title of just about every Esther sermon or commentary I found online. This is the moment. This is your moment, Esther. This is the occasion on which you rise from the ashes, from the baggage of your past. You fight through the obstacles in your way and do what no one else has done before, what no one else is able to do. This is your moment to be a hero. And oh, how we all want to be a hero to be loved and lauded and applauded and robed in fine silks and paraded around the city. Or at least have our name in the paper or a lot of really good comments on our Facebook profile. 
And we, we shouldn't sell ourselves short. It's not just about the fame, right? We, we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to know that we have done something worthwhile, that we have helped the world become just a little bit better. Those aren't bad impulses, right? It's good to want to make the world a better place, to commit ourselves to something worthwhile. But not everyone gets to be a hero, right? Not everyone gets their name in the paper or receives fame or recognition or feels like they have done anything really significant at all. A lot of us live pretty ordinary, humdrum lives, unsure if we are making any real difference at all. And that leaves us wondering, did we miss something? Did we do something wrong? Did we miss our Esther moment? Or what if you've been the hero and now the moment's passed? The newspaper's been recycled, the comments forgotten, the world has moved on to the next thing, the next crisis demanding their next hero. Do we need to find another hero moment? The line we focus on in this chapter of Esther is for such a time as this. But equally important, if not more important, I think, is the line Mordecai says before. If you remain silent, help and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place. In other words, this isn't about you. God does not need Esther. His plan does not rely on Esther saying yes or no. If she says no, God will continue to be God in some other way. God does not have all of his eggs in this basket. But God is inviting Esther to participate in this plan he has. This isn't about Esther in the sense that everything hinges on her, but it is about Esther in the sense that God is about to do something remarkable in Esther. God is extending an invitation to Esther to lean into the moment, to pay attention to what's going on, to pay attention to how God is at work in the world, and with curiosity and wonder, to see how she might participate in that. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. To save the Jews, yes. But also to bear witness to the God who is saving the Jews, who works wonders in strange and marvelous ways. Our hero moments are about doing something good in the world. But they are also about God doing something good in us, changing us. And if this is about what God is doing in and through us, 
then we can trust that the opportunity for change, for faith formation, for a growing awareness of what God is doing, that that is available to us no matter how big or how small the moment is. You're in a grocery store aisle next to a woman who can't reach the top shelf. Your brother says that he's feeling burned out with parenting a newborn. You move cubicles at work and end up next to the guy no one ever talks to. You move into a retirement community and notice there's a gentleman who always takes a long time to get to dinner. These aren't big, obvious hero moments. They don't scream, God is up to something. But these are yet moments to pay attention to how God is working through us and in us. To trust that God is, in fact, up to something. The book of Esther, after all, is rather famous for not mentioning God once. God isn't obviously present, and yet we trust that he is at work behind the scenes through all of it. And so any moment to do what is kind, what is right, what is just, what is loving, is a moment to lean into our identity as children of God, the God who is doing big things in this world and is inviting us in our small ways to be a part of that. By reaching up to grab the can of soup from the shelf. By offering to babysit our brother's kids for the night. By striking up a conversation with our cubicle neighbor by offering an arm to walk our new friend to dinner. Who knows but that you have come to this position for such a time as this. What position have you been brought to? What is it that God is doing in you that will allow you to do a little good in the world? What traits do you have? What history do you have? What skills do you have? What situations have you been brought into? What is God doing in you that will allow God to work through you? Because if we pay attention, we can bear witness to our hero to the God who will greatly accomplish his own good purposes according to the workings of his sovereignty and love.